Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Robert, did you ever see uh, this movie from the 1980s starring John Travolta called The Experts? I have not, no. So uh, my memory of this movie is John Travolta and his co-star, whose name I can't remember, are nightclub managers in like New York or something like that. Okay. And they think they're going to Nebraska, but they end up going to Soviet Russia, uh, to a fake town that is built there solely to, by the KGB to like make like a, a spies, like the Americans, like oh, okay. a TV yeah, show yeah. the Americans. Where they blend in perfectly and exactly. they speak with just pristine They're Russian agents who are trained to understand American culture. Okay. And, uh, anyways, those guys, uh, John Travolta and his pal end up, uh, teaching them about all the great things about American culture. They love it so much that they turn against Soviet Russia. <laughs> Anyways, it's kind of a proto-Americans then. It is yeah. very much so. So I couldn't help thinking about that movie, The Experts, the entire time I was researching for today's episode, which is about a little place. It's actually not so little. It's surprisingly so. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it's in Soviet. Well, it's not no longer in Soviet Russia. It's in Siberia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's called Akademgorodok, I believe is how you pronounce it, which translates from Russian into Academy Town. Yeah, you can you can really think of it as the the Russian Hogwarts for science. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned that earlier, and I think that that is like the perfect uh, analogy. It is where Russia sent all of its smartest wizards to train, mm-hmm. uh, and it's been around since the late fifties. And so, uh, basically, we uh, discovered this through an article that was in the Guardian that was really well written. Uh, it was sort of just like a, a biopic thing about it. And I said, let's, let's do an episode about this thing. It just yeah. sounds so weird and perfect for the show. Yeah, it's great. It's weird. It's fascinating. And the thing that really surprised me is that, uh, I could not find any examples of fiction or even creepypasta yeah. that takes place here. Like this seems like the perfect setting for all manner of weird, paranormal, creepy yeah. science, mad science shenanigans. Especially like, you know, you mentioned creepypasta. We, we did an episode in the last year at least, uh, mm-hmm. about that creepypasta Russian science experiment and then, uh, we, you know, we've done episodes recently about the Space Mirror Project with Project uh, Zinmaya mm-hmm. and also the um, Human Z episode. Yeah, who can forget that? Russian science, too. Academ Gorodok didn't come up in any of these things. No. Um, so it's kind of fascinating, especially because uh, this place seems to be like the place for Russian science. Yeah. And I mean, not only like mad sciencey stuff, but like spies like why hasn't james bond run right. through the streets of uh <laughs> yeah uh so <clears throat> yeah let's keep that in mind and hey hollywood producers if you're out there listening i don't know it, it's a little late for like some cold war mad science shenanigans but um i don't know maybe that movie uh, oh that was set in world war ii frankenstein's army did you ever see that oh yes yeah frankenstein's and, army is a lot of fun it's essentially a haunted attraction as a film yeah like it's not yeah. If you go into it with that that mindset and realize you're not watching a, like a, a a true like character engagement film, but you're yeah. oh, going yeah. on a haunted house ride, it's yeah, fun. yeah, totally. Yeah, for the listeners, Frankenstein's Army. Uh, Josh Clark from Stuff You Should Know turned me onto that movie. Oh, yeah, that's uh, a fun one. Uh, yeah, it's basically uh, Frankenstein creates a bunch a bunch of like zombie monsters for uh, the Nazis as they like pour through Russia, or is it the other way around? Is it the Russian ones? I can't remember, but it's it's basically. Set uh, during the invasion of Russia. Yeah, I believe that's right. Okay. Anyways, go watch that, guys. I think it's on Netflix. Okay. So let's get down to basics about what this place is. It is hidden away in the cold Siberian forest, and it's actually been called uh, Russia's Silicon Forest as an alternative to Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's located 3,000 kilometers east of Moscow, and the weather there ranges from 30-degree Celsius summers to negative 40 degrees Celsius winters. So it's like all over the place, like brutal cold. And then like, apparently like there's like a real mosquito issue in the summers. Like it's, it's hot and there's just mosquitoes everywhere. It's right on, uh, alongside what's called the 
I believe it's Ob River. Anybody out there who knows Russian or has like a familiarity with Russian, I apologize in advance. I'm going to butcher a number of things here. And the only way that I was able to figure out how to pronounce Akademgorodok and Novosibirsk was by watching a YouTube video by a dude who is American that just happens to live in Novosibirsk and teaches uh, Russian to people over YouTube. And speaking of Siberia here, I mean, anyone who doesn't have that, have much familiarity with Russia, uh, you, you might be thinking, oh, Siberia, you're thinking like, Wastelands, you're thinking like tiny camps, and maybe you're imagining this strange artificial place in the forest there. And and not that that part maybe isn't completely uh, off, but it it is worth stressing that Novosibirsk is a major uh, metropolitan area. Yeah, absolutely. Like that was a mistake I made. I I would say like through the first half of the literature, Mm -hmm. I didn't quite have that understanding until like I ran across the statistic that Novosibirsk is the third largest most populated city in Russia after mm-hmm. Moscow and St. St. Petersburg. So yeah, it's Siberia, but it's not the middle of nowhere. It's, you know, it's pretty populated and Akademgorodok is like 20, 30 kilometers just outside of Novosibirsk and mm-hmm. it's like it's its own little entity, but it's connected. Yeah. Uh, it, in fact, it's kind of, I guess like the, the best analogy is it's sort of like Cambridge to Boston, right? Like Cambridge, uh, is often used as a, as a, like analogy for Academ Gorodok because of, you know, Harvard and MIT are there. But in Academ Gorodok's case, it's, uh, you know, uh, state universities. And then now, like a lot of science and tech oriented companies are moving there. So, okay. Novosibirsk was founded in 1893. So even the t- city itself isn't that old. Right. Especially for a European city. Yeah. This kind of follows on the, the, the long-standing Russian trend of uh, this is the place we will build a city, mm. uh, regardless of its, uh, you know, Siberia or a swampy <laughs> wasteland. Yeah, sometimes I I feel that way about Atlanta, where we live. Like I'm like, why <laughs> why did anybody start like set up roots here? And it was, I think in Atlanta's case, it was just it just happened to be where a uh, train. Yeah, it's where the trains came. Terminus, converged, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so by the 1930s, Novosibirsk itself had already like garnered a reputation as like having several educational institutes, uh, very focused on physics. Uh, and it, it really didn't like the Akadem Gorodok experiment didn't really come about until the late fifties. And the way I like to think about it is kind of like if, uh, if our listeners are familiar with the TV show Eureka, uh-huh. I think it's a little bit like that, although less science fiction-y. Mm-hmm. And then um, some of our listeners actually turned Joe and I on. I don't think you've listened to it yet, right? Limetown? Uh, no, I've heard mention of it. But- so Limetown is a podcast uh, that is about a fictional American science town kind of like this that I highly recommend. Uh, anyways, those were in my head as well as John Travolta's classic, The Experts. <laughs> while, while we were studying this place. <laughs> and it's also worth pointing out that the realization of uh, Ak- Akadem Gorodok, uh, it, it's all part two of the uh, the seven-year plan from uh, 58 to 65, which was a big uh, initiative in Soviet Russia. Yeah, so what we're looking at here is uh, basically a team-up between a mathematician named Mikhail Lavrentyev and uh, everybody's favorite premier, Nikita Khrushchev. And their idea was basically they were going to take the USSR's smartest scientists and put them all in one place so they wouldn't be distracted by Moscow. Like, apparently, both the, like, you know, metropolitan nature of Moscow, but also all the politics uh, going on in Moscow was becoming a problem for these scientists. They weren't getting their work done. So they said, let's send them off into the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. This Novosibirsk. That's perfect. We'll build something right outside of there. Because uh, all you have to do is distance yourself from the politicians and they'll leave you alone, right? Yeah, and in fact, it happened, but then it well, turned against them, yeah. too. And, yeah, and we'll get into some of the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the ups and downs as we uh, progress here. Uh, so, you know, if you're a scientist and you're in Russia in the 50s, and this is actually pretty attractive to you because, one, you've got the freedom, but also you have, like, large, spacious quarters and everything's super cheap. Yeah. Uh, and apparently even today, like, it's relatively cheap. Like, on the, this, this guy that I'm talking about from the YouTube video, he, he was saying you can rent, like, a huge, spacious apartment in Novosibirsk nowadays for, like, 500 US dollars a month or something mm, like nice. that. Um, so he recommended going to visit there. And in fact, didn't you say like you, you looked at TripAdvisor to get some information? Yeah, yeah. Uh, TripAdvisor is, uh, TripAdvisor is a great way to sort of give a, to, to get an idea of, you know, what, what kind of offerings are in the area, you know? Yeah. Like you can head on over to, uh, 
to Novosibirsk. You can go to the zoo. You can go to the, the ballet. Like an awesome zoo. Yeah, yeah. Like, like it, it, the way it was written about in that Guardian article, I thought, oh, this is just like this city in the middle of nothing. But mm-hmm. actually, like, there's, there's a lot going on there. You know, it's, it's relatively metropolitan. And even that they were saying, um, there's a service that's not Amazon, but it's like Amazon in Russia now, where you, you know, ne- get next day delivery or two day delivery on like basically anything you want to order, right? So any DVD that you couldn't find <laughs> in a local shop or something like that or stream, you can get, you know, this isn't, it's not that isolated. So, uh, the other things that were there was they built an artificial beach to try to make it more attractive. Uh, and I actually saw pictures. I was, I was looking for pictures for this episode mm-hmm. and there were pictures of, from the sixties of, uh, Russian women just hanging out on this fake beach. Uh, so they just the dumped river. a lot of sand on, on the water. Or? I don't know. I don't know how they put it together. Um, it, that was uh, that wasn't in any of the research, uh, but I would imagine, given the feats that these people were performing with science, that making a fake beach was like <laughs> pretty easy comparatively. Uh, yeah. So the, the and and they also this is interesting. The whole design of it was set up to preserve the natural environment of Siberia. So that's fascinating too, right? I mean, you're considering the 50s, like they were thinking ecologically back then too when they were setting this up. Yeah. Now, uh, it's worth noting that the original plans called for what for what is called wedding cake style Stalinist uh, architecture. <laughs> uh, and yeah. the, the word the Russian for that uh, is Zukorbakar uh, still. OK. And uh, at any rate, luck, that would have been, you know, a lot more boxy communist looking buildings and less of a reliance on trees mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. that got scrapped and they ended up going with this. Uh, this uh this more natural look or at least it's more natural when you when you factor in all the trees that they mm-hmm. have yeah the um we'll talk about it later but there's like a main building there now that has been built recently for mm-hmm. the sort of modern day version of this place uh and it's this kind of fascinating architecture style i have to say like after doing all the research i was kind of like this seems like it would be a fun place to go on vacation <laughs> like uh, maybe that's something only the uh, people who host science podcasts think when they read about this oh, is the building your thing is this the one that looks like a an upside down u mm-hmm. sort of yeah yeah it's pretty crazy yeah it's just uh this uh, the whole area just seems sort of fascinating and um and like it would be fun, but you know, I'm also not the type of person who goes to the beach on vacation, <laughs> even if it's an artificial beach. And in terms of getting uh, actual institutes in there, I want to point out that uh, Mikhail uh, Lavrentev's Institute of Hydrodynamics was the first to really become operational uh, in uh, Akadem Korodok. Yeah, and as we'll talk about later, like there's basically like any university type situation, mm-hmm. there's little silos all yeah. over this place, and there's like. Little institutes, I say little, they're not little, uh, but there's probably like, I don't know, 10, maybe 12 of them, um, that just have all the different disciplines that were studied there. And it's, it's intense when you think about like how much was all being focused on in this different area and still is. Now it took them 10 years to actually build the center of Academic Gorodok, but, uh, it was essentially built with the idea being that it would be a campus for Novosibirsk State University. Okay, and here's the answer to that. It's 14 institutes, not 12. Uh, And they were all set up as part of the Soviet Academy of Sciences. Now, at its height, there were 65,000 scientists there. Uh, Now, I would imagine the height would be the mid-60s, given what we've read. Um, Although it's getting back up there again now, it's not as much of a public institution anymore. It's a combination of public and private uh, enterprise. In terms of the amount of money spent on building this up initially, a 1972 article from Lauren G. Leighton, uh, published in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, uh, put it at around 200 million rubles or $220 million, yeah. 1972 bucks. I saw some figures that said, like, over the years, the combination of money that went in there was close to a billion. Yeah. Um, that they just, they really wanted to make this thing work. And yeah. So they just pumped a lot of money. Yeah, a lot of the money's it. going in uh, from the state. And then initially, uh, eventually they get to the point where there's actually some, some uh, money coming in from industrial ventures as mm-hmm. well. So um, Mikhail Lavrentev, who we've mentioned, who's sort of like the father of this place, he was important to cybernetics and genetics. That was like his field of study, but he's uh, mainly known as a mathematician. Now, this is important uh, before we go forward. At the time... 
genetics was considered a pseudoscience, huh. uh, especially in Moscow. I don't mean genetics like worldwide. I mean, like in terms of the Russian science community, it was kind of looked down upon. And mm-hmm. a lot of the genetic studies, especially those that went on with foxes that we're going to talk about, uh, which was my favorite study that came out of this place, uh, would not have happened if it was in Moscow or anywhere where uh, the Communist Party in particular would have been aware of what it was up to. So this was also a nice way for him to sort of um, hide some studies. And it allowed a certain amount of freedom for these scientists. And also, my understanding is that like it was almost like a touring destination for artists and what they were, they actually referred to them as bards. Uh, coming through the town who would, you know, give performances or uh, do poetry slams. Like, and I, I, it, it sounds like I'm joking, but the way they described it, they weren't called poetry slams. They were like poetry readings at like local coffee houses in, in uh, Akademgorodok. So very much in, in, in line with some of the Silicon Valley-esque stuff that we yeah. hear about. Or, or, you know, I imagine some of you actually experienced with uh, your serial stations and your... Uh, your your meditation workshops coming through uh, through yeah, the workplace totally and so uh, this was like this place where uh, all like Russian creatives could sort of like flow through and distribute their ideas mm-hmm. to the scientific community there uh, without fear of repercussions <clears throat> and one last thing before we go into the problems with this place when things started to fall apart is the logo is super cool. Yeah. Um, so the, the logo they came up with, the idea was that it was the Greek letter Sigma and it was emblazoned on top of a shockwave. Uh, and the, the design thinking here was basically that it would suggest the synergy of a broad range of disciplines, uh, while bringing a quote flash of lightning to the area. <laughs> it's a pretty good logo. I have to admit. Yeah, it's cool. I wonder if like, there's probably like a collector's market for like old Russian, uh, Akadem Gorodok, like lapel buttons or something like that. I should hope so. But then maybe again, maybe you can get them on eBay. Yeah, mate. Uh, it would look great on a t-shirt. So if it's not already on one of these, you know, the millions of t-shirt uh, websites out yeah, there, seriously. it needs to be. So that uh, that article that I mentioned earlier by um, Lauren G. Lighton in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists from 72, yeah. uh, the title on that is Another View of Akadem Gorodok. Yeah, it was sort of like a response piece, right? Uh, yeah. Because there was one that had been previously published like a year earlier in the same journal that was fairly critical, I think, right? Well, yeah, and this, and, and to a certain extent, maybe not being critical enough, like kind of okay. not not really dealing with the kind of the nuts and bolts of but how things were coming together. My understanding was it was sort of like uh, Western scientists trying to come to grips with what yeah. this might mean. Yeah, and this is and this ends up being uh, I like this paper because it's a little more like. I mean, it's certainly not demonizing and saying, oh, this is evil Soviet yeah. science town. Uh, but it's, but it's laying out just some of the basic logistical problems and just human problems of trying to build what is, this is sometimes referred to as a science utopia. Uh-huh. And everybody yeah. knows what happens when you try and build a utopia. Yeah, it falls apart. Yeah. It becomes a dystopia. Yeah. Right? If science fiction has taught us anything, it's that we'll never have a perfect world. Right. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it, at the very least, like this was often, held up as being sort of an unlimited funds, unlimited talent, unlimited opportunity for scientific inquiry. And, of course, anytime someone is trying to sell you something that is unlimited, uh, you know there are limits. It, it might be that might be an all you can eat seafood buffet, right. but there is a finite amount of uh, steamer tray yeah. shrimp you can eat. There's only so much. Yeah. So you know what I'm already thinking? Like we've we've talked about this on the show many times before. Like met, all, all of our ideas for AMC dramas, <laughs> his, historical uh, period pieces that come up throughout the show. So we've we've already talked about how there should be one that's sort of about like the. <clears throat> the science psychedelic set of like, um, Timothy Leary, et cetera, those, those types of folk. Mm-hmm. There should be like an AMC type Mad Men show that's <laughs> set in Academ Gordok in that the sixties. That'd be, that'd be fantastic. That would be good. Especially, uh, especially taking in some of these details that, uh, that come from that, uh, Lighten article. And, uh, specifically she interviewed, um, one, uh, uh Gennady Lovovich Pospilov, who uh, was director of the Institute of Geology and Geophysics, okay, and um, and so he had a you know an insider view of how things were coming together. And my understanding from the readings was that 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 institute, the Geo- Geology and Geophysics Institute, in particular, was like one of the 
big successes uh, mm-hmm. for this place, in particular because it was the first one to bring together all of the sub-disciplines of geology and geophysics into, like, one uh, organization. But then also, like, they uh, somehow, like, came up with a new system. It's in the notes, so we'll get there later. But uh, they came up with a new system for discovering oil, and they found major oil plots in Siberia. Cool. And that's an, an example of things working the way you would hope they would. Yeah. You're bringing these, these, all these talented individuals together. They're going to have coffee at some point. They're going to go to the water cooler. Uh, you know, <laughs> they're going to go to the fake beach. Yeah. Minds are going to, going to come together and new ideas are going to be generated. Mm-hmm. But, um, as Pospolov pointed out, first of all, it was difficult to get things off the ground and moving. After all, everything was done from scratch here. There wasn't, uh, I, th- I think the example that was uh, mentioned in the article was that, you know, it's one thing to build a factory. Yeah. You know, you know the, the, the components that have to come together. You can put that together with relative ease because we've been doing them for a while. This was sure. something entirely new. Um, and then they wound up with three types of scientists. Okay. Uh, um, according to Pospolov, three types of scientists that ended up at Akadem Gorodok. Uh, the first was, let's call them idea men. The quote here is, on the one hand, you've got the clever ones who give birth to new ideas, each one more interesting than the other, but they expect everything to be done right away uh, <laughs> and uh, want it done with a wave of the hand. And they're not known for their persistence or their love of tedious labor. Yeah. And so nothing comes from them. Okay, so right. you have those. This guys. already sounds like uh, just a- any public university to me. Yeah. But, okay, keep going. And then there are the, uh, let's call them time servers. He says, uh, toilers who are not by God endowed, mm-hmm. but for all that they're a stubborn lot and you just might get something out of them, only they don't have ideas. Yep. I'm okay. familiar with this style of academic as well. Yeah. <laughs> I called them turtles when I was working in academia. <laughs> yeah. And then there are the enthusiastic. Quote, those who are neither clever nor toilers, but rather those characters who believe mistakenly they're, and this is his phrase, keep going away, the, yeah. by God endowed. But don't you be in a hurry to dismiss them as ballast. These people are quite often such enthusiasts for science that you can't bring yourself to write them off as ballast. Yeah, so if this works out the same or worked out the same way that uh, politics in, you know, my experiences with public universities, I'm sure it goes on in private universities as well. But there's I imagine that these factions sort of broke off. Right. And there's like they're like Venn diagrams. There's a little bit of overlap. It's a little bit of cooperation. But there's also like a lot of infighting for power and expertise and uh, small stakes. Yeah, yeah, I think so. and, and, and also, you just have a lot of individualists here mm-hmm. and occasional outright prima donnas. And they're all <laughs> arriving with preconceived notions about how things are going to go down in this science wonderland, right? Yeah. But then reality hits. Projects have to be adjusted. People are shuffled around. People are pulled uh, between larger projects and their own private ventures. And it was also difficult. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, we're going to bring all the best minds together. But yeah. even in communist uh, Russia, even in the Soviet Union, it's difficult to lure everyone to Siberia. So many were turned off by the harsh climate or they're unwilling to leave their own institutes where they already had their yeah. own ventures, you know, up and running, perhaps to, you know, to the degree that they were perfectly happy with. Um, also money, despite the idea of unlimited funds for scientific achievement here, there were money problems. So you had Moscow. The politicians essentially mm-hmm. holding the purse strings here. And so they're scrutinizing everything. So the the hot and cold running um, science funds tap uh, yeah. definitely had some eyes on it. And this became a major problem for this area, uh, both in the 70s and then again in the early 90s with the collapse of yeah. the USSR. So you can run, you can distance yourself from the political head, yeah. from uh, from the politicians, from the those who 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 uh, guard the purse strings, but you're not going to escape them completely, especially if you're sucking this kind of money down. Mm. Uh, also, uh, the problem of two worlds here. So you had science over humanities. You had complex specialization uh, rather than the sort of free-form idea jazz that one might dream of, at least in every situation. Yeah. I mean, the example we, we mentioned earlier, that's an example of things working more or less the way they should, but you're not always going to get that. Yeah, that definitely seemed to be like my uh, take on it when I was reading about the history was that, you know, other than these like traveling bards and, mm-hmm. you know, poets and, and writers and uh, uh, occasional filmmakers on Andre Tarkovsky. Oh, did he? Uh, yeah. Oh. Is that, am I saying his name right? I believe that's right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he, he went through there as well and gave a talk. But um, other than those folks, they didn't really have any liberal arts, right? Like, yeah. whereas like, 
you know, my familiarity with places like Georgia Tech, which is down the street from us, or MIT, they do have at least like some small programs that offer liberal arts. So there's a little bit of a balance and it's not yeah. just all empirical. Yeah. I mean, like even at Georgia Tech here, um, there are definitely uh, areas of their 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 technological involvement that spill over into the liberal arts, such yeah. as their music and technology program. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and finally, uh, the practical applications of findings still trumped, and perhaps still trump, uh, the purity of scientific inquiry. So there were clashes that resulted between Moscow and its party ideals, as well as um, the uh, the individualism and elitism at Akhat and Gorodok. So you would have these individuals that definitely had their pet projects, perhaps such as genetics, you know, something yeah. that is not as accepted. But meanwhile, the the voices from Moscow are saying, all right, that's well and good, but this this is the thing we need. Right. This is why we brought they, everyone together. They probably wanted them to be focusing on things like, uh, uh, I would imagine, like militaristic endeavors yeah. or space program stuff, things like that. Um, In fact, I believe it was originally meant for military defense projects, hmm. uh, and the, the founders were con- uh, they, the, the founders were able to convince the government to give non-military research the highest priority. Even more surprising that we didn't hear about this when we researched projects yeah. in Maya, because it seems like it, it's like a perfect fit for what they were doing. Indeed. Um, so yeah, so this like what Robert's talking about with this uh, clash between Moscow's ideals and the individualism rising up in Academic Gorodok resulted in a, a, a period of time there that is referred to now as the brain drain. Mm. And this was in the 1970s. Uh, the Brezhnev era of Russia curtailed the freedoms of these scientists and then turned the science there more towards working on the military and the economy. All right, so this is where kind of the, the, the stick breaks. The right? rubber yeah. meets the road, yeah. yeah. What happened was there's a group of scientists who, you know, let's imagine that they're in our television show. This group of scientists hangs out at the coffee house. They watch the traveling bards coming through. They listen to their uh, uh, big ideas. They talk about them amongst themselves. And then they said, you know what? We don't like the fact that there's uh, secret political trials held here in the Soviet Union. Let's write something called the Letter of 46. And I think that meant it, it was 46 of the scientists. Uh, they basically wrote it to the Communist Party in Moscow and said that they're standing against this stuff uh, and they didn't like it. So uh, that didn't go over too well. And the Communist Party turned around and uh, both had a campaign to re-educate the staff there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, uh, this basically ended what, uh, the period of time that was referred to as the thaw, which was sort of like the cold. We I think that comes from us probably more from them. But the thaw being that it was like less of a cold, frigid, communist, uh, uh, you know, Cold War type uh, environment, right? All right, so no more jazz. You're playing classical music. Right. I think the bards got bumped out, yeah. Uh, and they were informed specifically that, one, they were not an island of freedom, and two, they were forced to publicly recant the letter. So if they wanted to keep their jobs or they didn't want to get, like, you know, sent off to their own uh, secret trial they had to basically stand up and say, oh, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I'm going to go back to my research. Then jump forward 20 years, right? So there's like this steady decline uh, during the brain drain where more and more scientists start leaving Academic Gorodok over this time, right? They're just like, they're, all, all, all the utopian ideas that were presented to them didn't come through, right? So mm-hmm. you've got this huge sort of industrial science town that's got like the best equipment, uh, it's designed for the best people, but the people are leaving in droves. Uh, and so what ends up happening, we get to the 1990s, it's practically abandoned by then anyways, and then the Soviet Union collapsed, and pretty much everybody who is there left. Uh, and, and went back to the West. Now, there's a particular example of this that we're going to talk about when we get into the science there, and it's the Fox's one that I want to focus on. Uh, it's a really kind of heart-wrenching story about, like, the research, all the work that went into the research there, and then how it sort of faded out, and the repercussions that it had for the people, but also for, like, the test subjects, which were, like, uh, all these Foxes that they were working with. Hmm. Anyways, but I think before we get into that study, let's let's finish off the history. Let's get to present day. What is going on there now? So Vladimir Putin comes along. He goes uh, to India 10 years ago. So uh, I think it was 2005, so 11 years ago. Okay. 
And he sees how tech-savvy India is, and he says, well, Russia's got to have this, too. Uh, how about, he comes back and he says, how about we uh, mix federal and private money together, and we pump it back into Akadem Gorodok, uh, and this will be like our new cradle of innovation, okay? And it's not the only one. Like, I don't want to make this sound like this is the only place in Russia where, right. like, innovation is going on. Uh, from my understanding, there's at least three other major science tech complex centers that Putin has given funding to around Russia. But this one is the one with the, like, the big long history. Yeah, it's kind of a point of pride, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so much so that there's actually road signs as you enter going into the science park now that say the brain drain is prohibited. I, I, I think we should have that sign everywhere. That's just a good yeah. indicator that, um, you know, nobody's going to be squashing your ideas, and there are no illithids around to um, play your minds. <laughs> mind flares, yeah. better known as mind flares. They are. They will just totally destroy a, yeah, a scientific stick, or stick academic their tentacles right up your nose and suck your brains out. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what the brain drain's all about. Uh, the secret history of Academ Gorodok. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now we're just going off on a D and D tangent. Okay, See, it, the, the <clears throat> fiction and the, uh, the the creepypasta basically writes it. Yeah, it does. Um, so yeah, so so Putin puts more and more money into this place. Uh, oh, this is where I got the $1 billion from. I'm okay. sorry. So the $1 billion I was talking about earlier, that's present day. Like, it, oh, wow. it's received up to a $1 billion in the last 10 years. Uh, and today, Mikhail Lavrentiev's grandson actually works there and oversees the repurposing of the whole place. Uh, and the interesting thing is there's an interview with him, and he says that he thinks that his grandfather would appreciate the new Akadem Gorodok, and he would, quote, want business to pay for using our brains. So there's this fascinating, like, Russian ideological shift that you can just trace throughout the history of this one town, right? Like, from communist ideals to sort of, uh, like, it, this countercultural 60s vibe mm-hmm. to back into like an economic depression and then now it's bouncing out and it's like embracing capitalism and it's like, oh yeah, we're smart, but you got to pay us to be smart. Yeah. So now uh, it's based around uh, these buildings that Robert and I were talk- uh, talking about uh, that translates into Technology Park, but is Akadem Park. Uh, it's this 14-story, basically it's a monument. It's these conjoining twin towers and they they stand up, yeah, like you said, it's like an upside down W kind of, right? Like, yeah. Like, uh, they stand up at a tilt and come together, and then there's, like, walkways at the very top between them that are also at, like, an angle. It's really interesting. Definitely, like, do a Google Im- image search for uh, Akadem Gorodok, and that, that'll be, like, the first thing that comes up, this this building. Apparently, it was designed <clears throat> by architects that are from Novosibirsk, and uh, the, the whole idea was basically this association of major companies that established themselves in the area, sort of like uh, your local chamber of commerce, I guess. They called themselves the SIG Academ Innovation. Well, on the occasion of Putin visiting in 2005 for this sort of startup venture, they said, well, here's our here's our new wonderful building, uh, and it has four clusters of, of uh, studies that go on there. There's instrument engineering, information technologies, biomedical studies, nanotechnology, and then, oh, sorry, and then nanotechnologies and new materials. That's, that's one. Uh, as of 2014, there was a total of 263 companies there. That's in Akadem Park. That's not Akadem Gorodok itself, mm-hmm. which still has these institutes running. But, uh, there's, so you've got this mix now. It's sort of, it reminds me actually of the building that we work in, right? Like, so we work in this building. Yeah, I couldn't help but, but think about old, uh, PCM, yeah. Pond City Market a little bit, uh, uh, reading about this. For those of you out there who are unfamiliar, how stuff works, uh, our studios are in a building in Atlanta called Pond City Market that, uh, th- this used to be like a Sears factory, uh, uh in Atlanta, like way back in the day, like what, 60, 70 years ago? Yeah, like a Sears, uh, like mega center. Yeah. Yeah. And they would basically like trans, there was a railroad line that came up to our building and they would transfer goods in and mm-hmm. out of the building. Uh, and then, uh, over time it was taken over by the city of Atlanta. Uh, it was like a part of city hall for a long time. Yeah. Like city hall occupied a portion of it. And then the rest was just like empty wasteland. Yeah. Uh, you know, building. It was kind of just a, Big industrial shell, and that's what it was when I first moved here. Yeah, it was yeah just this huge here. monument of uh, kind of just like public falling apart. Yeah, uh, and and then in the last what three four years, it was bought by uh, developers and repurposed into this like mixed use 
office slash retail space that's also got this kind of like vibe of like there's a lot of of like tech companies here like yeah, uh, like yeah. ourselves Twitter's here uh, uh Mailchimp you know a lot a lot of big name companies yeah I mean like it's one hundred percent about making money yeah but you end up bringing in all these various companies and uh, it it kind of becomes an incubation center that was maybe like uh, the part that I was able to sort of like empathize the most most with reading about Academic Gorodok was. One of the key features of Atlanta, I feel like, Mm -hmm. is Atlanta does a really good job of repurposing things from its past uh, and to try to, like, make new use out of them for, like, its present-day identity. Um, Whether it's, like, old houses that get turned into, like, hip new restaurants or, Mm -hmm. like, art galleries, like, iDrum, like, places like that. Um, Atlanta's just full of stuff like that. So reading about this, it kind of made me think, oh, they're sort of operating under that same theory, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some of the scientific research that's taken place at uh, uh, Akadem Gorodok over the years. So uh, even before Akadem Gorodok was founded, like I said, like it, you know, Novosibirsk had this reputation for um, physicists in particular, but it, it had a lot of educational facilities it also attracted weird scientists and uh, the example that we're going to give today is a guy named Yuri Kondratyuk i think that's how you pronounce his name now yuri uh was only in town for a couple of years but this story oh it's good it's good <laughs> so it was worth putting in here uh he only was there for a couple of years uh, basically because he had previously attempted to escape russia he didn't want to have anything to do with with communist russia but he couldn't get out uh, and so he found a student who had died of tuberculosis and he appropriated his name. Ah, so you he's know, pulling a Don Draper here or, yeah, um, or a, a Highlander. Talented maneuver. Mr. Ripley. Yeah. All oh, yeah, Mr. Ripley. Yeah. Uh, and so he's taken on this new name and he moves to Novosibirsk. And he just so happened to have also published his own book. Uh, he'd already written this book years before, but he published it when he got to Novosibirsk. It's called, and this is a good title for a book, man, The Conquest of Interplanetary Space. Nice. And basically, he proposed groundbreaking ideas that were later put into scientific practice here. So uh, things like space stations, oxygen-hydrogen uh, mixed fuel, using solar energy, shielding space vehicles, and then in particular, using gravity to map out spacecraft trajectories. All of this stuff was just in his, this, this, this random guy's book. Uh, and he also, you know, he, it, it, this isn't just like some, some crazy guy who had ramblings in a book. Like he actually was, had practical applications for the science he was talking about. I wonder which of the, if he fell into one of the three categories we mentioned earlier. Oh yeah. Like, was he like a big idea guy who was like, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna have solar power, we're gonna have oxygen, hydrogen, fuel, but then didn't. It was mm-hmm. like, you figure it out. You figure the details out and get, let's do it tomorrow. That's what it seemed like from reading about the book. But then this project of his struck me as like, oh, this guy actually got a thing done. Uh, he designed a 13,000 ton wooden grain silo that he called the Mastodon. Ooh, nice. Yeah. And we've got like so many awesome metal band names popping up in this episode, <laughs> right? Like Mastodon's already a band, but like Akadem Gorodok would be a great, like the key. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we're a metal band. Uh, what's that mean? Academy Town. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, may I, I'm wondering if there's not one already out there, because in the past when we've said this would be a great metal band, there has been a yeah. metal band. Like, Osadox. Uh, Osadox is, yeah. a, is a metal band, and they're yeah. pretty good. I rec- recommend everyone check them out. So uh, this Mastodon thing that he built, the thing about it that's pretty fascinating he didn't use a single nail for it. The whole thing was like, you know, it was one of these structures that locked together. Oh, wow. Uh, and so subsequently he was later arrested and convicted. <laughs> subsequently, he was later arrested and convicted of counter-revolutionary activities because there were no nails oh. in the silo. They thought that he was purposely trying to sabotage the structure so that it would fall apart. Huh. Uh, and he had just come up with like this unique new way. And the reason why was because nails were hard to come by at the time. Like they mm-hmm. didn't, you know, do out in Siberia, it wasn't that easy to get a hold yeah, of Yeah, you're nails. limiting the, the need for, for iron and, and metals yeah. in the construction of a building. It makes sense. So uh, when he was trying to conserve and bring about new ideas, they saw it as counter-revolutionary. So, hey, this guy, you know, he was trying to get out of there anyways. And no matter what he could do, he was he was destined to get into trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... You know, basically, even before 
you know, all the stuff that we're about to talk about, Akadem Gordok was set up to work on everything from nuclear physics, the theoretical genetics, and like we said, the space program and weapons platforms. Uh, so we're going to go through, we'll talk about some of the institutes, uh, and, you know, some of them are sexier than others. Uh, so we won't, you know, I'm, I don't think it like necessarily we need to go through every single study that came out of them, but my favorite study is the Fox one that came out of the Cytology and Genetics Institute, uh, where they bred foxes for 50 generations to be more like dogs. Oh yes, yes, this is a famous study. Yeah, and if you, if you look this up, uh, the young woman who, uh, at least in 2012, she was sort of like the poster child for this uh, research. Her name is Arena. Oh man, I'm going to get this name wrong. Arena Mukhamadashina. She uh, is, you know, basically like uh, trying to train these foxes so that they uh, will respond to commands, obedience mm-hmm. commands. And Wow, like she was really popular with European and even Japanese media for a while because she's a very photogenic. She's a this very beautiful young Russian woman with long curly red hair and she's it's it's everything like you would imagine when you're thinking about like oh like a, a female Russian scientist working with foxes, right? Like yeah. she's got like uh red hair that matches the the coats of the foxes that she's working with and there's all these pictures of her like playing with the foxes in the snow or cuddling up with the foxes or or whatever like working with them on their sitting posture. That's interesting because I I cannot I can't help but imagine it also plays into uh Asian supernatural fox motifs both in Japan yeah. but also in the uh more uh, Asian portions of Russia. But yeah, I mean to your point like apparently like, every article I read about this uh said that there was a Japanese media company that flew out to Novosibirsk and filmed with her for oh, several wow. days. So like clearly this was a story that caught like the imagination and attention of a lot of people including myself. Now the origin story behind these foxes goes like this. There's a biologist named Dmitry Belayev, and he gathered 130 foxes from fur farms all around the Akademgorodok Novosibirsk area in the early 60s, and he bred them using only the least aggressive ones from each generation, basically trying to recreate the process within which how wolves became dogs. Now, by doing so, he professed to compress thousands of years of process into just a few decades. Now, the the idea here was he didn't want them to be pets, okay? He was hoping to test a theory that, and this is interesting, I'd never heard of this before, that domesticated animals are actually physically altered over the course of their domestication through their contact with human beings. And they undergo biological changes to be more appealing to us. Hmm. So in the example that he gave with wolves to dogs, floppy ears and curlier tails. Now, in the case of the foxes, uh, my understanding was that, like, yes, they, like, have adopted things like wagging their tails. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they also, they lick hands. Uh, and they, uh, apparently this, this, breed of foxes that uh, she's working with today have like white patches on their heads. And that's not necessarily like normal for this particular species of fox. Hmm. So the idea here uh, is what's called domestication phenotype, the uh, making animals more appealing to man. Now, remember what I said about genetics, right? Like this was like a big no-no with the Soviets. So he hid what he was doing from the authorities because they would have disapproved of it. Uh, and the foxes did physically change. They found that they had less cortisol, uh, which is a stress hormone, in their blood. And they didn't feel discomfort when they were with people, right? Like, if I just walked up to a fox in the forest now, well, first of all, it would run away from me or bite me, right? Right. But, like, I couldn't just, like, cuddle with it, like, pick it up and hold it like a do- my dog, and it would be, you know, it would love being pet or anything like that. They had bred all of that out of these foxes. But these foxes were just kind of sitting there especially since the brain drain. So we get to the 1990s when pretty much everyone has left this area, right? And there's concern. They don't have any money. How are they going to feed all these foxes that they've got? So they actually started selling some of them. They sold a few of them to fur breeders, uh, but they pressured them and they said, look, please don't uh, make them suffer the stress of captivity because these particular foxes, you know, they don't, that we've bred them in such a way that they don't have like the defense mechanisms, the psychological mechanisms to deal with this. 
uh, go easy on them. Yeah, yeah. Now, who knows if that actually happened or not. But they also sold a couple of them as pets around the area. So some people in this area have foxes as pets. Huh. Along comes Arena, and she's 22 years old in 2012, so she's probably 26 now. Uh, and she's training these foxes to be obedient. She got the idea when she noticed that this special breed was seeking human attention, the ones that were left. So she had actually trained dogs all through her teens and she had been doing it professionally. But she was a student there and she said, you know what, I want to I want to take a go at this. So her advisor said, all right, take these two young baby foxes and she named them Anna and Elma. And she trained them the way that you would train dogs. So she started with food motivation to get them to respond to basic commands. Then she changed that up once she got them there to game motivation to connect with their other instincts and. Uh, as the story goes, she can make her foxes stand up, sit, lie down. They recognize their names. They come when they're called, things like that. Hmm. Uh, but she stated afterwards, she was like, I made a couple mistakes. Like they're not, they're not dogs. So I made some mistakes by doing it the way that you would with dogs because their psychology is totally different. So she says if she's going to do it again, she'd tr- change her training tactics. Uh, but she did, uh, sorry, it wasn't her, her advisor described these foxes as, quote, as devoted as dogs, but as independent as cats. So they have a huh. different psychology, but uh, apparently they are able to be like domesticated sort of partners to man. Interesting. Huh. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's one of the more noteworthy examples uh, here. But what are some of the other uh, institutes? Well, they had an institute, well, they still do, of thermal physics uh, that was founded with the rest of the area. Um, and yeah, it was one of the first institutes that specialized in the subject today, you know, it studies things like heat exchange and physical hydro and gas dynamics. Uh, they're known ironically because of the shockwave logo. They're known for their shockwave propagation effects studies in gases, uh, and also focused on ecologically clean power. There's the Budkur Institute of nuclear physics. This is, uh, an, an institute that's particularly, um, good at, uh, working on, particle accelerators. In fact, they contributed toward the construction of CERN's Large Hadron Collider and provided equipment to it. They also had a tool, I love the name of this, called the Siberian Snake, that they used to avoid depolarization of beams of spinning electrons or protons. I don't know what that means, but I like the Siberian Snake name. Yeah. There's also the Institute of Automation and Electrometry, uh, the Institute of Geology and Geophysics that I mentioned earlier, which, uh, you know, sort of made a name for themselves by discovering major oil and gas rich areas. Uh, there's an Institute of Theoretical and Applied Mathematics, and they in particular focus on like aerodynamic flows, and they have like an experimental facility where they can test these parameters on aircraft models. Uh, and then they have institutes that are also dedicated to semiconductor physics, laser physics, chemical kinetics, combustion, as well as the two that are named after Mikhail Kavrentiev, which is their Institute of Hydrodynamics, which you mentioned earlier, and their School of Physics and Mathematics. So they've got something for everybody there, it seems like, except for the bards. Yeah. There's, there's, there isn't, there isn't a lot of poetry there anymore, I would imagine. So nowadays, We've got Putin's initiative in there. There's a lot of entrepreneurs moving in. There's around 300 companies working on tech and science in the area. And it's set up in particular to provide infrastructure so these companies don't have to buy their own equipment, right? So it's like uh, sort of like a cooperative. Uh, they, they provide the equipment. You know, they provide the facilities. They make it attractive for these companies to come in and start up and and uh, work on science and tech. And these companies specialize in things like IT, pharmaceuticals, metallurgy, fossil fuels. One of the like interesting kind of factoids that came out of a bunch of the magazines was that the the uh, IT company that works on Oprah Winfrey's web portal is based out of there. <laughs> uh, and apparently like they didn't even know who Oprah Winfrey was when they were working on it. And then they said, but we do now. So <laughs> that's my that's my Russian impersonation for the episode. So, yeah, Russia's got 200,000 science and tech specialists who are graduating every year. And this is like a very nice new option for these young professionals. And for a lot of the same reasons that we heard about back in the late 50s, early 60s, right? It's cheap. Uh, everything is supposedly one fifth of the cost of Western prices. It's easy to focus. And one person they asked it, he said, uh, yeah, because it's so cold, there's literally nothing for us to do but work. <laughs> 
So, yeah, so we've got this big place now that uh, it's contributing uh, to the science and tech sort of hive mind of the world right now. And it has, you know, even like a version of Starbucks. It's called Traveler's Coffee. It's their their Russian version of Starbucks. Well, yeah, because the cold and harsh environment alone is not enough to make you work. You need a little caffeine. (laughs) Uh, and it has been officially inducted into the Guinness Book of World Records as the smartest street in the world. The Akademation Lavrentiev Prospect uh, is a 2.5-kilometer stretch that has more than 20 scientific research institutes there. So, Akadem Gorodok, your new destination uh, for vacation. Uh, from my understanding is you probably don't want to go in the winter, though. Yeah, yeah, definitely not. And hey, if you do happen to go, uh, there, there is one really interesting monument in the area. Oh yeah. And yeah, it is the monument it's... of laboratory, laboratory mice. Yeah. And it's actually, it's, it's, it's really quite cute. Um, I love this statue. It's like a little mouse man with, uh, he's wearing spectacles and he has like a cloak and he's, ho- it looks like he's sewing, but what he's sewing is a DNA helix. Yeah. Knitting it together with his knitting needles. And according to that's exactly um, how those mice contributed. Yeah, yeah. They didn't. They didn't just get sprayed in the eyes with chemicals and yeah. thrown in a dustbin. Yeah, it's very much. Uh, yeah, there's some a certain amount of artistic liberty taking place here. <laughs> and the the artist in question, Andrew uh, Kovrich, uh This is his statement on it. Uh, quote: It combines the images of the laboratory mouse and a scientist because they are related to each other and serve as one case. Mouse is captured in a moment of scientific discovery. If you look into her eyes, you can see that this little mouse has come up with something. But the whole symphony of scientific discovery, joy, eureka, has not yet begun to sound. So even more reason to visit, I think. Uh, and we hope we presented to you this sort of fascinating little niche area. I, I thought it was really worth digging into, and I'm glad we found out more about it, especially because of the whole Fox program. Oh, yeah. But, uh, hey, out there, if you've got more about this that you know about, like maybe you've visited already, or, or maybe you speak Russian and you want to correct us on our <laughs> pronunciations, <laughs> let us know. Uh, there's plenty of ways to reach out to us. You can talk to us on Facebook. You can talk to us on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. We're on all of those as Blow the Mind. We've also got our home base, right, Robert? That's right. SuffTheBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes. You'll find videos, blog posts, links out to those social media accounts, and more. And if you want to write to us directly, you want to tell us how badly you want to move to Academ Gorodok and start AMC's new TV show set in the 60s all around their science park, hit us up at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.